welcome back to another episode of the Fearcast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss. Thank you so much for joining me. This is a question and answer based podcast where you can send me questions about OCD and I will answer them on a future episode. You can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and send me a message over there by clicking on the uh, ask a question or submit a question link there. Um, you can also send me an audio question there. You can submit a link there or email the link to um, questions at fearcastpodcast.com. Uh, you can also go over to Instagram. I am fearcastpodcast over there. D me a question and click on the little microphone button in the in the chat box and uh, uh, just record yourself. I will get it and you will cut the line and it will be recorded a, a, as soon as we can and put it up on, on the next uh, available time slot. So um, I also want to say a, a little shout out to Kate who uh, reached out to me uh, through um, uh, through Instagram and just said how helpful the podcast was to her. And um, I'll say this. It never gets old. It never. Um, I, I never become numb to that. I appreciate the fact that people do reach out. Not that this is begging people to reach out to to message me this, but um, but Kate, it does mean something that that you messaged me that, and I appreciate that. I, I'm happy for the fact that you heard the podcast. It was helpful for you. It's helping you to move forward or help you to navigate something, uh, a struggle in your life, and that uh, this podcast could be there for you at a time in need. Um, and that's really the purpose. I mean, that is ultimately the purpose of why I started this podcast so many years ago. And I'm just um, in shock and in awe that it just persists after all these years. Um, it's been an honor of my, one of the honors of my career to do this. And I'm not going to gush too much more about this. I'll just cut, cut it quits. Anyways, thank you so much, uh, Kate and uh, I hope um, I hope things are moving forward in your process. So um, so today, by the way, is not going to be a question and answer. Today's another interview. Today, I was uh, I, I had the, the opportunity to chat with um, Reverend Katie O'Dunn, and she joined me to talk about her work with religious scrupulosity. And as you all know, um, I, I love talking about religious scrup. It is one of my favorite things, um, and uh, I don't get to talk about it enough. So the fact that Katie was able to come on and chat about her work and her advocacy uh, for religious scrup uh, was super fun for me. Uh, I hope it's super fun for you as well. But um, we got a chance to you know, just talk about um, uh, what religious group is, how, how it works, how she treats it, how she treats it from an interfaith perspective, her work as a interfaith um, uh, chaplain. And we also at the very end get to talk about a little bit of Disney stuff. She's a big Disney nerd as I am as well. So we got to chat a little bit about that and um, that was super fun. So let me introduce Katie and then we'll jump right into it. So Reverend Katie O'Dunn is the founder of Faith and Mental Health Integrative Services, an organization helping individuals with OCD and related disorders live into their faith traditions as they navigate navigate evidence-based treatment. Prior to this, she spent seven years serving as the Academy Chaplain and the Pauline and R.L. Brand Jr. 35 Chair of or 35 chair of religious studies at uh, Woodward Academy in Atlanta, Georgia. While serving in this role, she also served as the consultant for interfaith programming for schools around the country. Katie is a proud or is proud to be an IOCDF lead advocate, an ordained minister with the United Church of Christ, and an endurance athlete tacking, tackling 50 ultra marathons for OCD. That's bonkers. First off, just just. Just one ultra marathon would kill me. I'm assu- I get tired driving that distance, and she ran them with her feet, fifty of them. 
She's a better person than I. Anyways, she goes on to say, or her bio goes on to say, uh, she is currently pursuing her doctorate at Vanderbilt to continue uh, to continue with her focus on faith and mental health. She graduated from Chandler uh, School of Theology at Emory with her Master's of Divinity and Certificate of Religion of Religion and Health in May of 2015. So, without further ado, this is my conversation with Reverend Katie O'Dunn. <laughs> Katie, thank you so much for joining us for the FearCast. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk about all things OCD and Scroop and faith and beyond. Awesome. Super excited. So, um, well, why don't we just start off with, with your story? Tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of, of OCD treatment, the world of advocacy, and, and specifically this niche within OCD of religious scrupulosity. So I know that was a, a lot to start off with, but um, I guess t- tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah. Um, so... I've personally navigated OCD since before I can remember, as I know many folks have that experience. I can remember some of my earliest childhood memories at seven or eight had to do with things that I was worried about and things that I was calling my parents into my room at night to make sure that I wasn't a bad person or that the sun wasn't going to get too close to the earth and it wouldn't be my fault. I mean, lots of lots of things as a kid and didn't know for a long time that the things that I was experiencing, um, my obsessions and my compulsions had to do with, with OCD and things ebbed and flowed really throughout my life. Um, and by the time I hit college and, and grad school, things were were pretty tough for me. I was really, really high functioning. So on the outside, it looked like I was a straight A student. I was a D1 athlete. I was leading honor societies. But internally, um, there was kind of that rumination narrative running for me 24-7, where I was trying to just prove that I wasn't a horrible person. Um, By the time I actually got into grad school, I went to seminary at Emory to do my Master of Divinity and started that program, started my ordination process. And my OCD really spiked at that point. Mm. I was in my early 20s, and a lot of the compulsion shifted from mental to also physical where I was checking ovens, stoves, locks, doors, my car, all throughout the night. And it got to the point where I was driving back to churches where I was interning at two or three o'clock in the morning to make sure candles were blown out, to make sure things were unplugged, Mm. um, to make sure I was keeping every possible church safe, to make sure I was keeping the seminary safe. Um, And at this point, I was doing a dual degree with actually public health and I had taken enough courses to know that this was probably OCD and um, confided in a mentor that I thought I might have OCD and that it might be helpful for me to seek treatment. And I was told that um, that would not help me in my vocation or in my career, that I was up and coming in ministry and had a beautiful life ahead and that I wouldn't be ordained and wouldn't pass my psych evaluations. Um, so this was, uh, this was in, gosh, this was in 2015, 2016. Um, so pretty, um, pretty awful. Um, listeners can't see my shocked face that I was having as you were, that's, that's so, um, so disheartening. Mm Mm-hmm. Incredibly so. And, you know, it's it's really interesting thinking back to that point, how things could have been very different for me if when I was hitting that moment, if I would have been able to, to seek treatment. Mm-hmm. But 
I, I didn't. So I actually lied on most of my psych evals, um, mm-hmm. tried to kind of curb things in a particular way that it didn't look like I had OCD, mm-hmm. passed and continued to move through and ended up in my first um, ordained and in my first role in ministry in a huge private school in Atlanta with, with 2,700 students and was coming in. Um, my predecessor had been there 25 years. I was coming in at age 25 the first female in the role, lots of pressure, but mm. feeling like, um, I don't know, like I had to have it all together and I had to have it perfect and nobody could know that I had OCD. Right. So there was this really, um, really tough component. And as soon as I got there, my students were so important to me. I was in such a public role. OCD started latching on to absolutely everything. Um, so I started worrying about being a harm to my students, being a horrible person. What if I wrote something wrong or said something wrong or hit someone and forgot? What if I ran over a kid with my car? All of those things. And um, was able for the first time really to seek treatment. So started working with Shala Nicely in Atlanta, who long after has become a great friend and, and mentor and supporter. And she helped me really go through ERP for the first time. I got better very, very quickly. And kind of went back into my role. No one knew I had been doing treatment at night and felt like I would never have to worry about OCD ever again, which I think a lot of us have that perspective. I was like, great, no more intrusive thoughts. Did the treatment. I'm fixed. I am fixed. I am cured. Um, Not necessarily how that works. So I went back into... um, a really tough year in, mm. in my role. Um, I did all of the frontline trauma and grief work and lost students that I cared deeply about um, to mental health issues. And um, among lots of other tragedies where I was supporting this really large community and being the front kind of facing person talking with students about suicide and about overdose. And my OCD started latching on to all of the traumas and tragedies that I was helping people through. Um, I started to fear that I was not actually this nice minister, that I was somehow responsible for every single tragedy that happened in the community. Mm. Um, And it got pretty bad where I was doing funerals and services and standing up there at the pulpit wondering, am I actually responsible for this in tangible ways? And did I just forget? So I externally was this really happy put together chaplain in this public role and then would go home at night and try not to call the police on myself for crimes I hadn't committed. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up back in treatment and again, no one knew, um, but was doing intensive treatment with Shala at night. And it was the hardest period of my life. Cause a lot of things were very tied to legitimate tragedies going on with students, but I got better. Um, and I started to see uncertainty in a very different way. I started to see mental health treatment in a very different way and started to reflect on the fact that a student I had recently lost um, hadn't felt like they could come forward with their mental health struggles because of their faith tradition. Mm. And for the first time, I reflected on what my mentor had told me about not seeking treatment and realized it was my job or really a call as a chaplain, as a chaplain to these kids to say, actually, your chaplain just sought mental health treatment and it saved her life. So I, I started coming out and speaking out about my story. And to my surprise, families didn't not respect me any longer. It was the opposite. I started getting calls that 
They wanted help talking to their rabbi or to their priest or their imam about their own mental health struggles. And that ultimately led me to um, start getting into this mental health work, which I'll shape it into scroop in a second, but that's my journey that got me into this work. <laughs> wow. What a, to, to use the term, what, what a journey, what a, a lot of highs and lows going on with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. And I think, I, I, I think referring to it as a calling is so, um, so apt here, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. There can be so, f- there are so few people, I've heard this before. It's, you know, we, in mental health or in, in church land or in, you know, whatever your uh, background is, you know, we don't talk about mental health. We really want to know about the end results, right? Mm-hmm. We want to know about that you've gone through your journey and that you've had recovery and that you've overcome and all that stuff. But in the middle of it, we don't talk about it. And even, I mean, even then we still don't want to, talk about the end result because that would imply people have mental health issues or people have mental health in general. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say absolutely. And I tell there are all sorts of different thoughts on this, but I, I tell folks that I work with almost every day in the area of OCD, you know, there's at least for me, this, this was very much, a journey and I don't see God as as creating this brokenness that I experienced in my life, but I do see God as giving me an opportunity to create beauty out of brokenness for this to become my call where I get to take some of these really tough pieces that happened and be led um, in a vocational way by God to make a difference in the world for others who might be struggling and to let them know that they can in fact engage in their faith tradition while seeking mental health treatment. Right, right. And that those two things can happen at the same time and that we can be people earnestly seeking after our faith and know that mental health – well, I'll finish that sentence – and know that mental health is something that is to be addressed like we would address physical health throughout that process. Um, how how has it how has it been to I guess what, what what do you do with folks who are concerned I know maybe we're jumping ahead but who, who are concerned about you know m- mental health being directly tied to their spiritual health mm-hmm. and that kind of yeah, equation. oh this is um, this is something that that comes up all the time and especially so I'm in um, a doctoral program right now and I'm, I'm specifically looking at reimagining exposure and response prevention as a spiritual practice um, in helping individuals reconnect with God in a value-driven way um, so this is this is a topic that comes up a lot I have lots of supporters in my program but also some individuals who are not super excited about the conversations happening along with faith and mental health together and I I often tell people that again just like someone might experience cancer like my mom has cancer someone might have diabetes that there are very much these physical things that are occurring in our brain and that by doing treatment it's not saying um, that we are opposing faith in any way we're actually engaging in a treatment that's going to help us get back to those people that God has created us to be. We're actually addressing something the same way we would a physical illness so that we can live those big, beautiful, wonderful lives. And I I see very much these treatments that we have, these wonderful evidence-based treatments as an answer to prayer. It's not in opposition to prayer or to God. It's, wow, maybe my prayer has been answered with the fact that we do have ERP and ACT and evidence-based treatments. Right. Oh, man. I, I, I want to know all about this when you're done with your dissertation. I want to know all about it. Um, 
I mean, this is the stuff that I'll talk about with my clients all the time is that ERP is a f- act of faith it yeah. can, and should be used as an act of faith and as an act of celebration in your faith that um, I've, so I've a ridiculous article on Psych Today that talks about um, that, it, it, that it, I think it's something like uh, ERP shouldn't be a tough sell for someone in, in faith. It's, we're saying, I do trust, I do believe, and here's how. I'm going to show you it through these actions, but uh, so I'm I'm all right. I'm, I'll 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 stop because I'm I'm totally on board is what I'm trying to say. Um, but yeah, but trying to trying to separate those two can be tough to try to convince someone that there are there are spiritual struggles that we can have, mm-hmm. and there are mental health struggles that we can have. But you know, especially with OCD, it tries to convince you that they're one and the same. So trying to separate those two can be a tough game. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, I guess that's a great place of, so that's the work that I ended up falling into by accident, but love very much. Um, so when I started coming out with my story as a minister with OCD, um, I was working in interfaith chaplaincy. So was working with students who were Jewish and Christian and Buddhist and Muslim and Sikh and Hindu and beyond and mm-hmm. was teaching narrative religions and had a very good understanding across faith traditions because I'd been doing it with kids from different sects for seven years and teaching kids from every faith tradition imaginable. And so started to, when I started to share my story on OCD, um, I started to hear from clinicians in the community about religious scrupulosity, which was not a particular subtype that I had really experienced. A lot of my things were related to harm and more moral scrupulosity. But I started to hear from folks that said, wait, you know ERP, you understand the treatment, and you also know um, the Muslim faith or you know the Jewish faith. Can you help me separate what is value-driven faith from what is directed by the OCD? Mm. So I started consulting um, on cases while I was still working in chaplaincy and realized that I had a huge passion for this, that I very much had a huge call for that work, and that um, I was wanting to do that maybe just as much as the work I was doing with students during the day and ended up kind of doing that all night and made a difficult decision um, with a lot of support of the amazing community I was working in and with the IOCDF to shift into this work full time. So um, now I run Faith and Mental Health Integrative Services, which trains clinicians in interfaith literacy for ERP, um, trains faith leaders of all different backgrounds in recognizing religious scrupulosity, not offering reassurance or accommodation, how to make referrals, things like that. And then I do clinical chaplaincy work alongside care teams around the world to help separate what's faith from what's OCD, but also helping clients while they're going through ERP to reimagine how can I connect with my faith in a value-driven way? How can I not leave my faith behind, but how can that be a part of my treatment process? Right. I think that the the acknowledgement of the, the, the proceeding into this conversation also for those who are out there struggling with this, it, it acknowledges that there is a way to integrate those two, that it's not this, I have my faith life over here and I have my OCD struggle over here and they're different. It's that they are one and the same. It's that if you're pursue, I, I tend to think if you're pursuing your faith, can't that faith influence, it, 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 we would say, well, it, it, wouldn't your faith and belief impact your finances, your relationship, your other things, but mental health, it's over here, it's separate, it's, it's bad, we don't talk about it. It, it. it applies over there as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Um, something that I... I'm curious about for for you as an interfaith um, chaplain. Mm-hmm. I, I I hear these discussions. And I'd love to hear your perspective on this. But some people will say, "Oh, well, it seems like this religion or this denomination mm-hmm. or this would lend itself more to scrupulosity." Um, mm-hmm. Have Have you found that there is that that there is a discrepancy of you know th- this? religion experiences it more or you or what what are you finding in in relation to that yeah that's such a i get this question a lot Mm -hmm. and there it's um strictly anecdotal for me at Mm -hmm. this point but i I feel like ocd is an equal opportunity disorder that i (laughs) um across Uh every faith tradition imaginable i i work with Muslims, I work with Hindus, I work with Christians, I work with um, folks who are atheist or agnostic or Jewish, and it is manifesting again by latching on to their particular values. So from a faith perspective, I very much see that across the board. Um, I, I do think that some sometimes individuals who um, that are in more legalistic traditions, sometimes OCD might latch on in different ways when they might hear from um, from the pulpit or in messages that they're, um, if they're hearing from a pastor or religious leader that they can find certainty, sometimes OCD will latch on in a particular way to that, that there could be a difference in different denominations and interpretations of scripture. But I think OCD will find a way in anything that's important to you, regardless of your sect, denomination, or faith. Right. Okay. I, and I've, I, I've, I've kind of seen that, seen that as well, but it can lead to a lot of hot discussion. Um, what is it like for I'm curious, you? And I'm curious your thoughts on that too, because this is a conversation of what you see in your practice. <laughs> I mean, I've kind of, I, I, I agree with you. I think that the, the, yeah. No, no matter what your religious background, no matter how um, fervently you follow, it can latch onto something. Yeah. And again, it's to whatever degree that you, to whatever to the thing that you find important, that's what it's going to grab onto. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, the more legalistic ones do tend to lend itself more to, and, and I, I, I get it, right? Yeah. If the religion itself is saying there is a perfect way, you go, mm-hmm. oh, well, I ought to do that, shouldn't I? But we find that perfect way is unfeasible, mm-hmm. right? Or is unattainable from a human perspective. Um, but gosh darn, if you don't try, right? So <laughs> right. they give it the old college try and find themselves getting more frustrated, distant from God, angry at God, that mm-hmm. God has imposed this upon them. Okay. Where, whereas it's OCD who has latched on to a, a message of you know, the straight and the narrow, and said, it's not straight and narrow, it is razor thin, and the consequences are dire. And that sounds terrifying. And, but, but again, you could have a, an incredibly you know, liberal faith, mm-hmm. and it's going to say you're not doing something right. Eve, you're, you're still too far off mm-hmm. of whatever it may be, even though the path might be wide. Um, mm-hmm. What is it like for you to switch between switch hats between yeah. working with different religions? I mean, I folks who tend to find me are, are find me because uh, f- to work with me for a Christians group, but for mm-hmm. you, you're you're kind of bouncing around between different religious traditions. What has that been like for you? 
Yeah. Um, so it, it's actually my biggest passion. So I really enjoy that. It reminds me so much of my work with students mm-hmm. and from um, a personal faith perspective, I think, uh, you know, I, going back to my chaplaincy work in schools, I walked into interfaith work kind of not knowing what I was doing and feeling like, oh, what is this going to look like? And I learned so much about God from my students of all different faith traditions and just traveling with them to their houses of worship. I felt like my faith expanded and was able to see manifestations of God in different ways. Um, and I think I, I continue to see that with my clients. I carry that work with with students and am able to see whether it's, again, a Hindu or a Muslim who is struggling with scrupulosity that same thing that you might see with a Christian, but just through a different lens. And they're struggling with the same basic principle of wanting to feel loved and affirmed by God, but the OCD making them feel condemned and like they have to do things in a particular way, in an urgent way, in order to alleviate fear, guilt, shame. Um, so with switching hats, it's it's funny. I go back to kind of the basic principles. I work with most folks on separating what are we doing because it brings us meaning and joy and comfort and connection mm-hmm. versus fear and urgency and all of these things? Um, and then I try to put it in the language of, of each faith tradition and really affirm for the individual that the things that they do, the things that they experience are very much um, are very much valid. Um, in switching hats, I think a big part of my work is not just working with them, but with their clinician and understanding, okay, why might someone do this as a part of the Sunni Muslim sect? Why why is that significant to them? Um, so that we can determine what is, is a helpful exposure versus what might be kind of crossing the line within a faith tradition too. So I think my work is also with each person helping determine for them what is uncomfortable enough to be a really good exposure, but what also... Um, might, I I don't know, how do we understand your tradition enough to make sure that we are respecting that as well? Mm. I I think even in the way that you talk about that uh, shows the the importance of uncertainty and the role uncertainty is playing in the work that you're doing to say, you know it enough, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There's this line that we cross that we seemingly arbitrarily say, I know it enough, it's close enough, right? And we we go with it because otherwise we're all screwed because who's the person out there who knows everything about it? That, that one person. Great. Then there's the rest of us. Yeah, right? absolutely. Who doesn't know everything. So, and that one person who knows everything hopefully is going to say that they don't know everything either. <laughs> But you never well, know. And I think, I mean, to your point, my my favorite thing, I, I joke often that there are a lot of public theologians. I joke that I'm a publicly uncertain theologian, um, <laughs> that I am very public about being uncertain about everything. And um, I really think in in theology, we we can um we can believe strongly in something and we can move towards it, but it's actually in embracing uncertainty across faith traditions that we can begin to ask the right questions to get even closer to God. Um, Mm. And one of the neat things I I run weekly support groups with that are actually pretty international with again, folks from different faith traditions. Mm -hmm. And it's been really neat to see um, a Muslim pray for a Hindu, pray for a Christian, pray for a Sikh who are all navigating the same issues of uncertainty, um, who are all praying to God in different ways, but asking for help with navigating the uncertainty that's coming with their OCD and as a part of their faith. 
That's amazing. That's got to that's gotta be an amazing experience to see that. I cry almost every time I get off because I'm so moved, not only by the individuals, but also just by, again, the expansive nature of God in this work. Wow. Yeah. Um, gosh, I'm struggling because I had this great question that I was going to ask as a follow-up, and now it's gone. Um, <laughs> that's just the way it goes. I mean, your your stance of being a publicly uncertain person, uh, uh, a- a- advocate or person of faith I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think that your, you know, your radio show is going to take off. I think you need to be unquestionably certain, apparently, for <laughs> anything like that. But, uh, but I'm with you on that. Um, <clears throat> are when? What do you find between? Um, are, what are some? Oh, I'm trying. To, I'm now struggling trying to. Oh, this is going to drive me nuts. All right. What are some things that you've found between different faith traditions that are actually there? It is there. It's back now. I knew it was going to get there. <laughs> oh, brain. All right. So you, you referenced something really important. You said that when you're working with a student or you, when you're working with someone, you also are in conversation with their therapist, mm-hmm. right? Tell me about the role that a chaplain can serve or could serve or should serve in conjunction with a therapist when working on someone with their scroop. Yeah, um, this is this is a great question. I think faith leaders often can can play a large role um, in the conversation um, with with scrupulosity. I think engaging that faith leader so that they one can help fully understand what is. Um, what is how, how do we typically practice within the faith tradition, the 80-20 rule within a particular congregation of what are 80% of the folks doing or what would they be willing to do mm-hmm. um, to help navigate what might be helpful exposures and and what how can we kind of navigate that together. But I think another really key piece is engaging the faith leader to teach them how to not offer reassurance or accommodation, but how to offer hope, how to talk about Um, this leap of faith in the Mm -hmm. same way that we would talk about treatment, how we can talk about treatment as walking through the wilderness in a way that seems really challenging Mm. in order to reconnect with your faith. How do we reframe these practices or these treatments in a way that's spiritual? And I think clergy can do a great job with that, but obviously I'm very partial to chaplaincy work because I've done that for a long time. And think um, the role of chaplains in in hospitals and um, in in psych practices can be really helpful. Unfortunately, a lot are not necessarily trained on OCD specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my work, that's actually part of what I'm really excited about and part of my research long term. I'm trying to develop um, some sort of certification to train clinical chaplains to help them be specifically working in OCD so that we could have some sort of network of um, for ERP providers to be able to reach out to clergy from a particular faith tradition who are clinical chaplains who have been trained in faith and mental health, but also who specifically know OCD, who understand treatment and can offer support alongside. That's amazing. So for the, for the person out there who's, who's struggling with their, their group, their religious group, and trying to, you know, considering, you know, going and talking with their, you know, their pastor, their minister, their rabbi, their imam, um, and they're, and they're worried that that person doesn't quite understand OCD, what are some ways that they can help educate that 
that that uh, lead, that faith leader. Because you know, I, so often my my fear when I refer a client to you know, hey, you've got these questions, ask these one and done questions to this person, that they're going to be met with. Have you considered praying more? Have you read the Bible more? Have you, you know, there must be something within your faith that's lacking or insufficient. Um, that they're, that's what they're going to hear because perhaps that's what they've been hearing. Yeah. What, are, what are some ways that you can, that, that you would advise people to help educate their faith leaders? Yeah, this is this is such a hard piece, and unfortunately, it's it's. I would I would love to um, for every faith leader to have um, knowledge of this, which would mean that I didn't have work, and that would be the best possible thing <laughs> for everybody to be able to just go to their faith leader and talk about this. Our job is to put ourselves out of the job. I that's I totally feel like that um, mm-hmm. very very strongly. Um, but what I would recommend to folks is. Um, one, going and having a conversation using resources that we've actually worked really hard to put together with the IOCDF. Mm-hmm. So we have a faith and OCD resource center that offers resources particular to each faith tradition, mm-hmm. but also we have a specific page for clergy and for mm-hmm. clergy seeking to understand OCD and religious scrupulosity. Um, we've written that in a way that is accessible and that can explain not only what is OCD, how do we understand OCD, but how can you be a supporter through the process? Um, So being able to hand to them, hey, this is really what I need from you can be great. Mm -hmm. Um, Another piece that can be really helpful is um, I would encourage folks to invite their faith leaders to the upcoming Faith and OCD conference with the IOCDF. Um, So we have the next conference on May 1st, and we are expanding our faith leader track to do lots of training for faith leaders on religious scrupulosity, on understanding OCD, but also responding to other taboo themes, whether it's in the confessional or in another space. Um, So encouraging them and even handing them a flyer and saying, hey, it would really support me if you came with me to this can be a great way to educate them so that they can support you, but also maybe support others in the community. That's fantastic. Where where can folks find the informa- that, that information for their clergy? You said the IOCDF, is there a specific, can they just Google that? Yeah, so they, they can, and I can make sure that you have the link for the, the show notes as well, but there, it's, it's, um, there's an IOCDF Faith and OCD resource page. And when you go to the front, you can specifically click individuals with OCD, um, clinicians or clergy, and you can head to that clergy section. You can literally send that link to your faith leader and say, "Hey, it would really help me if you read this." <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that's yeah. I think that's that's a great thing to have, especially if you, they they know that either that that faith leader is inappropriately cons- uh, 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 conspiring with OCD and giving a lot of reassurances or giving advice that's kind of pushing them further into obsession or just trying to get some information because, you know, sometimes that there are questions that folks are obsessing about that they've just never really asked. They go to YouTube, they go to Reddit and they ask and they get a gaggle of terrible information, but they don't follow what you're talking about, the the 80-20 rule. Which mm-hmm. I've talked about on the show a bunch. It's it's we we're trying to we're trying to as best we can live by what eighty percent of the people within your congregation, your congregation, not the other one or the quote the right one, but the one that you are attending. You want to be in the bell curve, the eighty percent, because there's going to be the ten percent on the on the top end, ten percent mm-hmm. on the bottom end who are doing way too much, way too little. We're just trying to be the average person, not a superhero. 
So go ask. Go ask the person who's leading that to give you some guidance in that. Um, now, I, I, I went off on that tangent assuming, are we talking about the same 80-20 rule? It's the exact same <laughs> one, no. And okay. that's one of the reasons I think faith leaders, again, are, are so important. And um, Because like you said, it's not oh, the church down the road or the mosque down the road or that other one that I'm reading about online. It's specific to your community, to your community's values and and to your values, to the things that are significant and meaningful to you. And Mm -hmm. we never want to, I, I hear folks consistently that are nervous about doing ERP because they're afraid, you know, well, what if I'm asked to do this thing that yeah. is way beyond what if, what if I'm asked to eat something that isn't kosher or what if I'm asked to eat something that isn't prepared in the right way or to stop ritually washing entirely before Juma. I mean, any of these things right. and engaging the, the faith leader. I, I want folks to know that ERP is not about that. It's about making you uncomfortable enough that we can break down the OCD not having you oppose the things that are meaningful to you. And exactly. And to that end, the conversation should also be had with your therapist. If your therapist is making recommendations that are blatantly going wildly against, objectively against your faith, you know, in not e- eating a non-kosher item when that's something that your tradition does and you would like to uphold – if they're trying to push that, they, the conversation needs to be had with that therapist or perhaps a different therapist need to be, needs to be found. Mm-hmm. You hear those horror stories at the conference about people, you know, I, I think Ted Witzik shares stories about people being asked to, you know, tear pages out of the Bible and use them as toilet paper. And it's like, is it a great exposure? Yes. Is it a, something that I'm not comfortable asking someone to do? Also, Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, I mean, and this this is going to sound kind of absurd in terms of, so I get referrals all the time to help folks find an OCD treatment provider, but also to help navigate issues of faith in OCD. Mm-hmm. And I would say at least once, sometimes two to three times a week, I hear one of these stories like that frequently of someone that gets referred to me that I have a consultation with that I'll hear. Yeah. I am no longer engaged in treatment because I was asked to do this thing that was blatantly against my tradition. And um, it's, it's really, that's really tough because we do want folks to engage in ERP and yes, it's hard, but we also want you to do that in a way that, that fits with you and with your, your faith tradition. Right. It's, it's, it's not about being the, 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 the best or the right it's about living your faith in a more functional and sustainable way. I mean, the, the other comparison, you know, there's the, you know, the church, the mosque down the street, but it's also, I, I hear this, comparing it to the historical church or the way that they did it, you know, a thousand years ago, isn't that the right way to do it? Well, who, who knows? It's mm-hmm. the way that we're doing it now in the, in the tradition that you're doing it. If your congregation or your group does it, to what they think they did a thousand years ago, great, you're doing it that way. And I imagine they do it a little bit differently because we have electricity and the internet and you know things like that. So we're doing it different. <laughs> Anyways, there's a little bit of differences. I know we have um, hard outs at the top of the yeah. hour, but I wanted to just throw it out there as what are... But I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, <laughs> I, I want to be mean and be like, so how do you know you're saved? Go. No, I'm not going to do that though. But the... <laughs> The question is for for someone who may be struggling out there. I know that you you have a very unique position is that you could address things from a clinician, a a uh, clergy, and a uh, OCD ex- experiencer sufferer, depending yeah. on who your 
stage in life. Um, mm-hmm. You could address it from those different angles. What is some advice that you would give someone who is in, in the middle of their struggle or maybe in the front end of their struggle? Um, what advice would you give them as they're thinking about progressing into ERP? Mm, that's a, that's such a great question. Um, so I, I think one, I just want folks to know that you are, you are absolutely not alone and that it can feel incredibly scary. Um, I know mm-hmm. in my experience, I felt like mine was different. I felt like I would never get better. I felt like it would never work for me. All of these things and all of those doubts might come up and we can wave at those and we can still make the choice to step forward into this treatment that is really hard, but also really effective. Mm -hmm. Um, And from the clergy perspective, I want folks to know that ERP very much can be a spiritual practice, especially if you're navigating religious scrupulosity right now. I think we're not really worshiping God in our faith tradition. We're kind of serving the OCD. And ERP is a way to really shift that so that we get to worship the divine in a beautiful, awesome, value-driven way. Um, So all of these things can fit together. um, And I want folks to know that you can have faith in yourself, you can have faith in God, and you really can have faith in your treatment all at the same time. Um, I tell folks it's kind of the recovery trinity that really was helpful for me of, yes, I can love God. Yes, I can trust my therapist. And ooh, maybe I can even give myself a little bit of compassion on the journey for having OCD and acknowledging that that's hard. Um, But with all of that, I just want folks to know that you are absolutely not alone, that there is hope, and that by engaging in treatment, you can get back to the big, beautiful, awesome, wonderful life that God has created you to live, regardless of what OCD is saying in this moment. I love that. Well, thank you so much for saying that. So if people want to, well, I'll, I, I usually ask this. So if folks have questions about ERP, about treatment, um, and they and they heard this this episode and they, they direct those questions to you, any chance to be willing to be back on to field some questions? Always. Absolutely. This is, I can talk about this all day, every day. And especially as research unfolds, kind of my life is talking about faith and OCD. So yes. <laughs> Fair, fair enough. Well, where can people find more information about you and the work that you're doing? Yeah. Um, so Instagram is a great place to reach out to me at RevKRunsBeyondOCD. And then also you can find information about faith and mental health integrative services at RevKDODunn.com. Um, and pretty much at least every week, you can also see me on IOCDF platforms and can head over there and, and do lots of Q&A and question and answer too. Awesome. Now, the very last question is, what is your favorite or the best Disney movie and Disney ride? Go. Oh, oh, this this is like on the spot. Okay. Um, Disney movie. I like that this was the hardest question I asked you all day. Yeah, no, it really is. It's really, it's really intense. Um, Okay. Disney ride um, traditionally was always Tower of Terror. Um, but has recently shifted on my more recent Disney trip to the Winnie the Pooh ride, which I actually just think is the most adorable, wonderful thing in the world. It's a delight. <laughs> it is so delightful. Um, and Disney movie, mm, I think ugh, older Disney movie, Lion King. Um, I still listen to the Lion King soundtrack while I'm ultra marathon training. That's like that first a huge song. part of my life. That first it's, song. Oh, oh that's I, I listen to that as a pump up before races i love it um but newer i do still love i love moana and um 
and gosh, love Frozen, Let It Go. Those are also big pump up songs, but Lion King, the classic. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I asked that to see if it creates some controversy with people. We'll see what people have to say or they'll just go, yeah, that's fine. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, um, we, we were talking a lot about Disney before we got on today, so I wanted to throw that out there. All right, Katie, thank you so much for all your expertise and all your passion and everything that you do. Um, hopefully, we'll have you on again in the future, but uh, until then, uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Thank you all so much for making it through that episode. What a fun conversation I had. Uh, I, I, I had a lot of fun chatting with uh, Katie. I hope you all had fun listening to our, our conversation. Um, uh, if you have any, as she said, if you have any follow-up questions uh, for her, if you want to have specific questions about religious group that you would like Katie to jump on and discuss, um, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and send me a message over there. Or again, send me an audio question or your, you know, your text question over DM on um, the Instagram. Fearcast podcast over there, and I'll I'll do what I can to schedule and wrangle her in for that uh, question. Uh, she'd be happy to answer those. So um, please remember, everybody, that the Fearcast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit of help in your recovery, go over to fearcastpodcast.com, click on the find help link. And there's going to be a little bit of information for you there. So until next time, everybody, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.